In a few days, the world's top football players will lace up the boots and pull on the jerseys for the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. The Gulf Kingdom has reportedly spent... 230 billion US dollars on the event. Seven new stadiums, public transport links. It's that infrastructure and the migrant workforce that sweated over it that attracts controversy. Qatar has traditionally used a system of bonded labour that exploits and abuses workers, mainly from Asia. In an essay for Eureka Street magazine, Dr Binoy Campmark of RMIT in Melbourne says football players and fans face a serious ethical dilemma. Qatar obtained the particular tournament through, let's face it, essentially bought it because of its reserves it managed to get votes quite blatantly, a country that has no footballing tradition, no stadia for that at the time. It used labor, backbreaking labor, of which um, it has been said in the Guardian report that 6,500 workers have perished in this particular effort. The history of Qatar in the context of human rights is one that it shares actually with other Gulf states as well, which is a mixed record, to put it very mildly, in terms of labor rights, in terms of human rights, be it freedom of expression, be it assembly, you know, when it comes to labor rights, you know, there is a system where essentially an indentured labor system that still functions in uh, Qatar. So workers from, for example, the Philippines, from Bangladesh, from a number of countries are brought in in this system whereby they have to surrender, for example, their passport, and they are subjected to strict monitoring in terms of where they go to work, what they do. And a lot of this is based on the idea of not just control, but also just flexibility, because these people can also be moved on whenever it's convenient. And it's a very lucrative part of the labor industry in a state such as Qatar. I noticed, though, that the International Trade Union Confederation has said there have been significant improvements in workers' rights. Now, certainly it acknowledges that this was all for the FIFA World Cup, and it took that to prod Qatar in this direction. But it says, look, workers are no longer enslaved by the kafala system. They were satisfied that there'd been significant enough improvement. Yes, I found that interesting too, because if we were to accept that proposition, we would also have to then suggest that the strikes that have been arranged by workers taking place this year, you know, in anticipation, of course, for publicity as well for the World Cup, but also because they have not been paid or they have been irregularly paid, a range of issues arising from that, it would suggest that this problem is ongoing. It may not be as perhaps punitive and it may not be perhaps as you know, vicious, to put it bluntly, uh, than it has been before. But at the same time, the issue is also, are they going to be paid? Do they protest legitimately? There have been protests um, registered throughout. In August, there were certainly protests that took place. But the Qatari authorities have also made a very special point of targeting these protests, these strikes. Uh, what tends to happen is that the workers in question stay in their accommodation. They then refuse to go to work. And then what will happen is that if this is escalated, they then go and protest you know, in front of various official buildings and so on. But the fact is that these people have been targeted. So it's a curious thing, and I think it suggests the power that Gulf states in general, you know, the nature of money speaking, has in the context of advertising 
these projects such as the World Cup and so on. But can an event, Binoy, such as the World Cup, help liberalise a country? You raise a very interesting question. I don't think a single sporting event in history has ever liberalised any country. It's left it as it is or done something else but liberalising it. I cannot really think of any. Let's not forget the way regimes use sporting events. The notion, for example, that sport somehow enlightens, which was, of course, the notion that was accepted by the Olympic Committee when it came to the Berlin Games in 1936, and, of course, the Nazi state. The assumption there was that uh, let us bring athletics or athletes, rather, from across the globe of various ethnicities and so on and so forth, will that make a difference? Certainly the starry-eyed advocates believed it would, tending to ignore the fact that the Nazi regime was the way it was. And it, it comes with all sorts of other political regimes in history. Sport ultimately is spectacle. And what is the spectacle most craved by virtually any government, liberal, democratic or dictatorial, it's spectacle. It's the advertisement of that athletic prowess. Yeah, well, you've also introduced a, a fascinating phrase because you've said, in this instance, sport is about camouflaged protest. What do you mean by that? There have been various methods adopted by teams who have made no secret of the fact that they will go, they will participate, they will break bread, as it were, with the organizers, but they will also demonstrate a certain type of protest by which they will not essentially have any tangible effect. I don't particularly like what my host is doing, but I'm happy to drink the resources and eat the resources they provide because the sport comes first. So the camouflage aspect is most demonstrated, I think, by this example with the Danish football team. There is a manufacturer of apparel called Hummel, which actually came up with a gesture of, well, what we do is we're going to give the Danish team monochrome colors as a mark of protest, with black being funereal and commemorative of the victims and so on. But what Hummel did was essentially camouflage the issue, hence my remark. What they did was, we will still participate in the tournament. We disagree with this, but we will advertise a new range of items and we will participate promoting the Danish team's credentials. So it's a marketing opportunity. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that I really have taken issue with on this is that it is not just a marketing opportunity, it's a marketing opportunity that's brilliantly co-opted by the Qatari authorities. Mm. Because in a sense, the Qatari authorities don't have to do anything. They just have to observe the protest and then incorporate the disgruntled in a very sort of subtle way. They don't actually change anything, but they bring in individuals because they know that they want to advertise their causes too, but they don't necessarily want to affect genuine change. And mm. this has been my argument. There. Well, speaking of marketing opportunities, how has perhaps uh, the world's most high-profile footballer, uh, the Englishman David Beckham, embraced the Qatar World Cup? This has been a very interesting point. What Qatar has done is what other, shall we call them, regimes and governments have done in the region, which is to bring very high-profile individuals to engage in, in the act called sports washing. You know, if you see this advertisement promo from David Beckham, it is very lavish, it is very stylish, it is very brand-dominated, and it features a man who talks about the glory of Qatar. This is not surprising in of itself. 
but it is a very lucrative multi-million dollar contract that will be for several years beyond even the Qatar World Cup. And the idea of this, of course, is to talk about the role of football, soccer, the role of the sport and how we are setting, as it were, a particular foothold of the game in the region. That's how he's advertising it. So he sees a perfect figure for the advertising sense. He's been in advertising himself for so long. But it's totally, of course, avoided any distinct reference to domestic problems and human rights matters and so on. I mean, ultimately, do you think the only response is no one turns up? I mean, is that the only effective response? It is an imperfect response, and I accept that there is a very dominant view that the notion of the boycott, the notion of not turning up, is simply not in favor anymore. It sounds, uh, you know, it has the flavor, as it were, of the Cold War, which was done in the context of the United States boycotting, the Soviet Union boycotting Olympic events and so on in response to each other. But I do think that it has a role to play. If you don't want to be considered complicit, don't turn up. Yes, there are contractual issues. Yes, there are sponsorship issues. But the fact is that they were entered into by administrators and by individuals who probably should have done better, but that's not the consideration we're looking at here. Dr. Binoy Kampmark of RMIT, and there's a link to his essay at the Religion and Ethics Report homepage. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.